Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The end of Pennsylvania's fiscal year is just two weeks away, and this is usually when the predictions start as to whether the state will have a new budget on time. Negotiations have been going on behind the scenes, but the state spending plan wasn't the big news this week. Governor Tom Wolf signed a public pension reform plan that seemed to satisfy both Democrats and Republicans. To provide insight into those stories and others, it was a big week in Harrisburg. <laughs> WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief Katie Meyer. Katie, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Scott. We we were just talking about uh, there were there was a lot going on. It in was Harrisburg a full week. week. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I mean, it's tis the season, right? It really is, and we're not going to get to everything right. that uh, was significant news this week. But we will uh, touch on a few of these things. If you'd like to join in the conversation, give us a call one eight hundred seven two nine seven five three two, or send an email to smarttalk at witf dot org. All right. May as well start with the budget. Sure. Because we are two weeks from today would be uh, June 30th, and that is the last day of the fiscal year. July 1st, as I said, a lot of around this time, everyone is predicting whether uh, we'll have a budget on time or not. So what is going on? I know there's a lot happening behind closed doors, but is there anything that you can tell us that we know going in? Yes. So we... Uh They've started positioning a lot of the little component parts of the budget. So getting them, I know the Senate did some work. They got like vehicles for like, you know, the welfare code and the education code, those things that have to be passed as parts of the budget and probably put into an omnibus bill. They're in place. So they're starting to move. Not a whole lot of detail yet there yet. You know, they haven't actually filled them with what's going to be the final language. Um, so that stuff's in the works. We've seen uh, a lot of closed door meetings between mostly Republican and leadership. The Democrats have been sort of involved um, on like a tertiary level. But um, really what we're hearing is that, you know, Senate Republicans and Democrats are, or I'm sorry, Senate and House Republicans are sort of on the same page when it comes to spending. Um, As you know, so the, I mean, the House Republicans did pass their own budget almost three months ago now. The Senate uh, Republicans have not done so. Uh, We're not really sure if they're going to, but, uh, you know, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, So they're negotiating on that. The Senate leadership has said, you know, we are we like the spending level that the House Republicans um, put forward. That was a plan that was eight hundred million dollars lower than Governor Tom Wolf's plan that he proposed. So cuts a lot more spending, doesn't raise taxes. Um, you know, there's still a lot of questions about how exactly they're going to fill the structural deficit, because since the House Republicans passed their plan, you know, we, it's gotten worse. The shortfall for this fiscal year has grown to like one and a half billion dollars. It wasn't that high then. So, you know, they're always you know trying to make up for that amount of money. And it, it becomes very difficult, especially when we also have a three billion dollar structural deficit. So, you know, we're starting off from kind of far back when it comes to revenue. So we haven't seen a plan that really fills all of that yet. Um, So I guess that's what they're working on. That Um, House budget that you mentioned, $800 million less than what Governor Wolf had uh, proposed, and his original budget proposal was like $3 billion less than the the current fiscal year. Right, yeah. So we're clearly uh, sort of all on the same page in that we need to spend less this uh, this fiscal year. Um, but how to do that remains the key question. And Republicans have already said, uh, as they normally do, no tax increases. They have said that, yes. Um, so we will see what they can fill that with. Um, again, lots of spending cuts were across the board in the House plan. Um, but, you know, Governor Wolf also had cuts in his plan. So obviously we're going towards cuts. That seems to be the trend. Um, how big they are remains to be seen. I also want to note, um, we had uh, sort of a large component piece of the budget. A very controversial component piece is gambling. We have a gambling right. expansion that passed the House uh, last week. I feel like a lot of stuff happened last week <laughs> as well. Um, but it was a, really a large, as they call, omnibus gambling expansion. And that was because it 
really was like everything in the kitchen sink as well. Um, they put in, uh, well, two things primarily. iGaming would have been legalized and VGTs, video gaming terminals, right. and you've talked about these on the show. Um, and the VGTs specifically are pretty controversial. And the Senate has not had a bill that supported VGTs, so they're negotiating on that. We'll see what kind of changes the Senate makes to the House plan. But that is expected to be part of the budget. But even so, I mean, even best-case scenario, and I think uh, we had uh, Representative Mike Sterla, who supports uh, expanded gaming, uh, even he admitted that first year, you know, we would not come nearly, uh, would not raise nearly enough money. I mean, we're looking at, uh, in best-case scenario, I think the estimates have been two to $300 million. Yeah. I mean, people will, like, look to, um, was it Iowa or Illinois? Um, Iowa. Iowa. Or so, no, no, it was Illinois. It was Illinois. Okay. You're, you're right. I get the you're I right. states. Right. I know, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. Um, so, yeah, yeah, Illinois uh, legalized gambling, and they did get about a billion dollars in revenue year to year. Um, but, you know, it, that always comes at the expense of are they cannibalizing from existing gaming? Right. And so, I mean, there's going to be revenue from that. That's a revenue driver. It's not going to be enough to fill the entire structural deficit. So I'm not going to ask you for a prediction, but uh, do you get a sense of what people are saying at the Capitol as far as a budget on time? That's sort of like asking me for a prediction. It <laughs> is. It is. But I'm, I'm kind of looking for an observation of what you've heard. Sure. Yeah. From And I'll go on based on what I've heard from journalists who are, you know, wiser than me because they've been there longer. Um, many are saying it looks like we're going to get something in July, you know, mid-July, maybe. But again, it's, it's hard to tell. It doesn't look like we're going towards a nine-month standoff. Right. And that's what I was going to say yeah. is that this, this feels a whole lot different. And you and I use the word feels sure. uh, on purpose that this feels a whole lot different than what it did uh, two years ago. It does. But I think it's worth you know, bearing in mind that just because they like they seem like they're agreeing, they also seemed like they were agreeing last year and they ultimately did get a budget passed pretty close to the due date. However, we know now with a year in retrospect that that budget was not balanced. Mm. All right. So let's move on to another issue. And history was made this week, Katie. And when Governor Wolf signed the public pension bill, uh, we have heard for years, actually, Republicans have been pushing this. I, I always think of uh, Senate Majority Leader Jay Corman. Oh, this, he was so happy. Right, that this was his number one issue was to get a pension bill passed. What happened? I mean, because even though Senator Corman has been pushing it, Republicans have been pushing it, there was another push back as to it seemed like it wasn't on the priority list for, for Democrats. What happened? Yeah, well, a lot of it happened behind closed doors. So in some ways, your guess is as good as mine. But um <clears throat> What happened was they, you know, leadership were having meetings, closed door meetings for weeks and weeks and weeks leading up to them announcing that they had this plan. And it's a plan that compromises enough things in enough places that, you know, the Democrats were, for the most part, not all of them, but were, were okay with supporting it. And Governor Wolf had said, and he had said this about previous plans that they had put forward as well, that he would sign it. So he was already on board. Um yeah, so this plan, um, and I know you've talked about it on the show, too, but it... Try to cover all these things, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so the plan, um, it, it's not, it doesn't go as far as, I think, anybody wanted, or and it goes a little too far than what some people wanted, so nobody thinks it's perfect, they keep saying that. However, they're very pleased to have passed this, because it is, you know, it's a compromise for them. Um, so it goes towards, not a, four, a full 401k, which a lot of Republicans like, but a stacked hybrid plan. Um, so there's a 401k option, two hybrids, and the purpose of this is to transfer risk down the line. So, you know, it gives... You know, the government essentially some padding if the economy crashes again, they're not paying out these giant lump sum pensions to people. So, so, yeah, go ahead. But at the same time, one of the big issues, and I hate to, I don't want to downplay this because it was, you know, just a few years ago, this seemed almost uh, impossible right. to happen. But there is a big but here. There's a big. A 60 <laughs> to $70 billion but in that, uh, I know that sounds weird, doesn't it? <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> there, there's the quote of the show today. <laughs> but anyway, um, a sixty to seventy billion dollar debt yeah. for you know the the public pensions that we have now that still has to be paid somehow. It does, and uh, so that is yeah the sixty or seventy billion dollar but. Um, yes, it, I mean that is a real issue, and none of them are going to say that that's not an issue. However, it's an issue that doesn't. It's not so pressing at this moment. 
Um, but yeah, no, a lot of people say we need to pay this debt down faster. A lot of people will say, oh, we're already paying it down as fast as we should be because they're meeting their quote unquote actuarially required I mean, there was legislation a few years ago that addressed that Yes, that, that was from yeah. 2010, yeah. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, they... <laughs> The, I think the issue with this is when people hear pension reform, they're like, okay, are my property taxes going to go right, down? You right, know, people want right. to see, okay, is this going to help me at all? Because, again, property taxes have grown astronomically. Um, so, no, this is not going to reduce property taxes. And the legislature is very forthright about that. If anything, this increases costs over the next 15 or so years. Um, but what it is, it's an insulation. I think it is easy to downplay it. But this was major legislation that they got passed. Is The, the concern that I hear from a lot of people who really wanted this debt paid down faster is that now, you know, for five or 10 years, they can be like, well, we did pension reform. And so that can sort of be their insulation against, you know, paying the debt down any faster. Well, just think about that. We're, we're talking about 60 to $70 billion. billion dollars with a B. And even when I say 60 to 70, that's a $10 billion deficit, you know, that we don't know right. exactly what it is. It all has to do with, you know, what we get on our investments. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org spine. Our guest during this portion of the program is Katie Meyer, WITF's Capital Bureau Chief with a Capital Week in Review. And there was, there were some significant uh, things happening at the state capitol this week. And as Katie mentioned, even last week, and, uh, you know, we've been talking about a lot of those on Smart Talk, continue to talk about them uh, on next week's shows as well. We encourage you to join our conversation by calling 1-800-729-7532 or sending an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. I should mention coming up in the second half of our program, we're going to be talking with uh, Joby Warwick, Washington Post reporter who has written the book Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS. It won the Pulitzer Prize last year, and there is some breaking news having to do with uh, that book uh, on today's program that we will tell you about on today's program. All right, so Katie, uh, something that uh, happened yesterday, and we're going to be talking about this on Smart Talk on uh, Monday. Uh, There was a lawsuit filed by the Pennsylvania League of Women Voters about how Pennsylvania draws its congressional boundaries. Now, I'm not adding, I don't know, I didn't hear any discussion about state legislative boundaries. No. But as far as this is congressional boundaries, you just said to me during our break that, you know, you hear something about this a little bit more around election time. Well, we don't have an election until next year. Right. (laughs) But at the same time, I've been around for a long time. I can't remember as much conversation about this as we are having here in just the last few months. I mean, there's the Fair Districts group that has been pushing about it. Tell us about this lawsuit. Sure. So this lawsuit, as you said, is just about congressional boundaries. Um, And it is suing to try to prove that the last congressional boundaries, the ones that were drawn in 2011, are unconstitutional, that they are a partisan gerrymander. And, you know, as we've heard on this show and and many other places, gerrymandering is when you draw congressional boundaries to give a certain political side an advantage. So in 2011, this the process was sort of you know, controlled by the Republicans and the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court was Republican controlled at the time. That's often the deciding factor. But Republicans drew the boundaries and they were upheld. So um, the suit is about what's sort of the Republican gerrymander that they're saying it benefited the Republican Party. However, you know, this could go either way. Maryland's got a lawsuit against the Democrats. You and know, so Maryland both, is called the most gerrymandered state in the country. Yes, so the ge- Democrats right did a good job there. with yeah. that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I mean, both sides do this whenever they get the chance to. So the question here is, you know, who's going to defend this lawsuit? Who's going to have an issue with it? We're starting to see, you know, very interesting uh you know, side taking as it breaks down. Because again, so the entire, this is not a suit against the Republicans. This is a suit against the state of Pennsylvania. So if you look at the lawsuit, you know, the defendants are Governor Wolf, you know, Lieutenant Governor Mike Stack, and then the leaders from, you know, both caucuses. And uh, so, yeah, they're all 
I mean, it's just I don't know what it's going to look like. I was trying to ask around to figure out what happens when the state gets sued in this way. It's like, do the Republicans and Democrats work together to fight the suit? I don't know. <laughs> it, it doesn't seem. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I mean, I, that's really what I'm looking forward to knowing. But it's an interesting um thing to have had happen, because as you said, we've heard a lot about gerrymandering recently, mostly from a group called Fair Districts PA. They're a nonpartisan organization that's against gerrymandering. They're trying to get a constitutional amendment passed. Now, that takes a long time. Right. So this could actually work more quickly. And so the results of this would be that at some point they get the 2011 map declared unconstitutional and they get it redrawn. And so, I mean, this, this could happen before the next reapportionment would happen after the 2020 census. So then 2021 would be when the districts get redrawn. This could happen before that, if, you know, depending on how fast the lawsuit goes. So, um, yeah, it's going to be really interesting. Um, they wouldn't necessarily institute a new, like, system for drawing the boundaries. I don't think I was trying to lock that down, but I, I don't think it would happen. Um, but they would have to redraw it in some, you know, quote unquote, fairer way. So how they would do that, um, it's sort of in the future at this point. Well, and there has been action, court action in other states. Yes. I mean, and I first thing I thought of is when I heard about this lawsuit is okay, you know, I, I guess was was it North Carolina just recently? Uh, I think North Carolina is definitely a very gerrymandered state. I do think there's some legislation or some legal action going on there. The big one too is Wisconsin. Right, there's right. been a lawsuit there. Um, yeah, Maryland, Wisconsin, and maybe North Carolina. Yeah. So I don't know whether it establishes precedent because it was probably state courts in those states. Right. But at the same time, it probably showed people here in Pennsylvania that these kind of suits can do what they want. Something you just mentioned, you know, I'm thinking, and you have to think about this from time to time. This is 2017. It's three years away from the next census probably five years away from the next uh, congressional redistricting. Um, I'm thinking, ah, there's all kinds of time. No, not really, not especially really. In the Fair District's PA route. If, you know, you try to change the Constitution, that's two consecutive uh, parts of you know, the legislature, have to be passed in the legislature, and then a referendum on a ballot. So right. that would take some time. That takes a lot of time. And it, I mean, it is very difficult to get a constitutional amendment passed. Um, there are, you know, the, the vehicles for those amendments you know, pieces of legislation. They are moving through the legislature, actually. They have, you know, well, not moving. They've been introduced, and there's huh. some... <laughs> this is the first part of the battle. Um, and there is some bipartisan support there, but whether or not they're going to get anywhere remains to be seen. Obviously, nobody's really doing that right now. Uh, Speaking of constitutional Speaking changes. of constitutional changes. Lieutenant Governors, you mentioned Mike Stack. Yes. And uh, we have, uh, you know, heard about the controversy involving uh, the lieutenant governor and his wife and his security detail and, uh, you know, some speculation as to whether uh, Lieutenant Governor Stack is going to run for re-election next year. But there was legislation introduced the, this week that uh, would also uh, change the Constitution as to whether Pennsylvanians actually elect a lieutenant governor on the by him him or herself, mm -hmm. uh, you know the way we do it now. It's totally separate uh, in the uh, in the primaries anyway. Mm -hmm. That uh, the lieutenant governor is elected by the voters and then runs as with the, as part of the party, the same party with the governor. This legislation would change that. Yes, it would basically do what we do on the you know presidential level and have the governor or the person who's running for governor choose their own running mate. And um, so, you know, in different states, there's many different ways of doing this. Uh, a lot of states have them run entirely separately. So in the primary and in the general election, you have separate candidates for governor and lieutenant governor. Pennsylvania does a sort of a, a hybrid thing of that where they run separately in the primary and then they run together in the general election. Um, whoever wins the primary becomes the lieutenant governor pick. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is again, and there's way, there's like other ways of doing it too in like funkier states. But um, funkier states. Who are those got funky, some funky states? states like Arizona? I Arizona's think does it funky. weird. It, yeah. Um, funky Arizona. <laughs> we'll, talk to, we'll talk about Arizona in another episode. But. Um, yeah, so we uh, so this legislation would have um, you know the governor and lieutenant governor sort of you know intentionally run together, and what it would do is kind of get rid of the risk you have of these sort of odd couplings because right. I don't think it's a secret like Mike Stack, Lieutenant Governor Mike Stack, and Governor Tom Wolf they don't work together 
too often. They're not really seen together in public very much. Um, and there, it's, it was obvious that there was some tension between the two when this whole controversy about Mike Steck verbally abusing his police detail came out. Uh, Governor Wolf, um, when he was asked, we asked him in a press conference, um, you know, what if you'd known about this and you had seemed very frustrated and had said he spoke to the lieutenant governor about this. And, uh, you know, they hadn't really, you know, met for a couple of weeks before the whole controversy broke. So, I, I you know, this is sort of a way of, or it would be a way of making sure that, you know, there's two people at the top who do work well together. Well, just to be, bring some historic uh, perspective to mm. it, Catherine Baker Knoll and Ed Rendell, uh, you know, it was like no secret around Harrisburg that Rendell preferred to run with someone else. I don't know whether, you know, going back, whether there was anyone in particular that uh, he chose, but uh, Catherine Baker Knoll, who won the primary, was not his first choice to be lieutenant, mm. lieutenant governor. So... Is this a direct result of the controversy over uh, Lieutenant Governor Stack, or is uh, did that just present the opportunity? You know, I think I think it's a little bit of both. I don't know that this would have been introduced had the Lieutenant Governor not been in the news as much as he was a couple of months ago. Um, you know, that being said, this has been an issue that was you know ongoing. I think this was sort. Of, I think this was the impetus for you know getting this introduced right now. But as we said earlier about the other issue, this would take a constitutional amendment. Yes, it would. So this is going to be, I mean, you know, it's an interesting idea, very hard to get passed. Um, You know, two sessions, consecutive sessions, this legislation would have to be passed. And then, yeah, again, it would have to go on the ballot as a referendum. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kitty, we only have about a minute or so Mm -hmm. left. Uh, So what are some of the other big issues that you'll you'll be working on over the next few weeks? Budget aside. (laughs) I was going to say the budget. Um, Well, I, I suppose as a component piece of the budget, we're going to be looking very closely at, closely at gambling expansions because, you know, that could go in a lot of different ways depending on what the Senate wants to do with it. Um, there have been, you know, some different stories. I'm still looking at uh, unemployment compensation. We've had uh, some questions about, you know, when there was money in the, you know, in the UC accounts before people were laid off. So sort of looking at that, looking at whether or not that's going to affect any, you know, of these lawsuits that are going on down the road. Um, but really, I mean, it's it's going to be a lot of budget. Yeah, it really is. And it's a busy time. Katie Meyer is WITF's Capital Bureau Chief. Katie, thanks for the insight. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. With so much attention on Russia in the last few weeks, we aren't hearing much about the war against the Islamic State or ISIS. Nothing has really changed with uh, what we're, when we were looking elsewhere. The terrorist group is said to be on its heels in Iraq, but still holding out in Syria. How did ISIS become the most a fearsome terrorist organization in the world. Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS is the Pulitzer Prize-winning book written by Washington Post reporter Joby Warwick. I spoke with him about ISIS. Joby Warwick, thank you very much for being with us today. Very good to be with you. Thanks, Scott. Let's go back to 2003, leading up to the U.S. invasion of Iraq. I read your book, and I've read several other books about the the plans being made for war in Iraq. It seems as though almost every decision made by the Bush administration, all the assumptions, all the intelligence, I don't know whether all is the correct word or not, but it seems like most of them were wrong. Would you agree with that? Well, you know what? If you think about where we are right now and this this disaster that we deal with on so many fronts, uh, particularly in Iraq with uh, with uh, the ISIS problem we're dealing with now, so much of that we can trace back to that period in the early 2000s when we made some some assumptions, when we uh, got some false intelligence, when we didn't listen to the right people, we didn't listen to some, to some of our allies, and we plunged into a situation that has cost our own country thousands of lives and has brought calamity to the world. And so much of it originates from that very period. It's absolutely true. Let's go back to February 2003. Secretary of State Colin Powell appeared before the United Nations and the world making the case for war in Iraq, pointing out that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. It was a whole production, a big production. Powell introduced the world to Abu Musab al-Zaqwari. What did Secretary Powell claim al-Zaqwari was responsible for? Yeah, so this is an obscure Jordanian terrorist at the time, somebody that really none of us had heard of. I was covering the story in the, in the early 2000s. I covered the speech. And all of us had to go race back to our computers to figure out who this 
individual was that, that Powell was talking about. He makes the case that this Mansar Kawi is the connection between al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. And as our listeners remember, there are really two big arguments for this invasion in 2003. One was the weapons of mass destruction problem. The other was this possibility of collusion between Saddam Hussein, the dictator, and al-Qaeda. One of these two got together and colluded somehow they could both be more dangerous. There was no evidence of association. In fact, al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein hate each other. But here was this figure that, that uh, Colin Powell mentioned by name, put his picture actually up before the U.N. Security Council, and said, this is the guy, this is our poster child, this connection between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda. It turns out the connection wasn't real, but it was part of the pretense that led to the invasion. It's also something that made Zarqawi famous overnight. He went from being a, a nobody, a, a, you know, a would-be, a wannabe, to being someone who suddenly had allies and followers and people from around the world were suddenly sending him money and, and volunteers to help his war against America. You know, it's not very often that someone becomes, and we often think of this in the entertainment business or in sports, that someone becomes a superstar overnight. But just what you describe of how pointing out there or giving uh, Al-Zaquari this, uh, this, this leading role, he does become a superstar overnight in the terrorist world. Exactly. Because if you remember what happened after the invasion takes place, it wasn't Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda proper that moved into Iraq to fight us. That's not what the insurgency was about. It was this obscure terrorist named Zarqawi, and he went to, to Iraq because he believed America was going to invade. He thought he was going to have his destiny there. He was going to fight this great superpower. But nobody would have listened to him. Nobody would have paid attention. But when the Secretary of State of the U.S. says this guy is important, when he shows up in, in Iraq and starts reaching out to you know disenchanted Iraqis and former military officers in, in Saddam's army and, so, and says, I'm going to lead this insurgency, he has credibility because the, uh, the Americans themselves have said he's important, that he's a, he's a powerful figure. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But let's go back a little farther in Al-Zaquari's life. Uh, he was nothing more than, I don't know, a common criminal at one point, right? Exactly. And, and it's actually important in the story of, of ISIS, if you think back to the pedigree of this organization, uh, the fact that he, he was essentially a thug. He started life as a, a sort of a two-bit juvenile delinquent. He became kind of a, 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 a drug user, an alcoholic, as someone who was abusive. He got into fights. And this was his core personality, a very violent, mixed-up guy who ends up getting religion. And so he becomes this, this criminal with a religious overlay, this sort of fanaticism and criminality mixed together. That was the personality of Zarqawi. It turns out to be very much the pedigree of ISIS today, which is why it does such brutal, horrible things and really isn't very pious at all, but it's mostly a criminal organization more than a religious fanatic organization. Zakwari had a mentor in prison, and really that's where he uh, discovered religion as well. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's a common experience for many of the, the jihadists that we deal with today is they became more radicalized in prison. And that was the case of this young man who was in his 20s. He gets arrested for some minor uh, troublemaking in his own country. He becomes very close to this uh, this mentor, a sort of a, a, an acolyte of al-Qaeda who has very radical views, who wants to overthrow the Saudi monarchy, believes in killing unjust Arab leaders. And this becomes, uh, you know, this the mentor for Sarkawi, and by spending all this time together in a Jordanian prison under very uh, difficult, harsh conditions, a bond is created, and Zarqawi becomes the enforcer, the number two guy, the guy who gets the enforces discipline within prison, listening to this very influential and, and uh, you know, a very powerful idea man. And so the two together become the core of this new terrorist organization that later on becomes al-Qaeda in Iraq. So Zakwari does go to Iraq after uh, the American invasion um, and is gathering followers and, you know, as you said, got some some credibility. But the next time he appears on the world stage is probably one of the most horrible things that Americans and the world has ever seen. And that is uh, the execution of Nicholas Berg. Uh, Nicholas Berg, I sh should mention, uh, is uh, 
local here in uh, Pennsylvania, originally from Westchester. Uh, he was a businessman and uh, had traveled to Iraq to uh, try to build uh, radio towers. But talk about uh, Nicholas Berg and uh, Zakari and uh, Nicholas Berg's execution. Yeah, so Zarqawi is starts out his insurgency in Iraq, and he's doing traditional things, typical things, car bombings, assassinations, trying to kill American soldiers, trying to kill Iraqi supporters of the Americans. But then he hits on this idea, a way to be different. He sort of discovered that there's nothing that's really more terrible, more sort of viscerally horrible to, to watch or to contemplate as the execution of a single individual. So he picks an American, and just by happenstance, he happens to run into Nicholas Burke, who, as you say, is this sort of would-be entrepreneur. He's in Iraq trying to start a business, and he wanders into the wrong place. He gets captured by Zarqawi's people, and Zarqawi decides to make this guy sort of a symbol of all the wrongs that he sees Americans committing around the world. So he takes this young man, he puts him in an orange jumpsuit, which is evocative of the Abu Ghraib prison scandal at the time of, of Guantanamo, of all the sort of the abuses that the Muslims see the Americans committing you know, in, in, in the name of war, and then puts him in front of a camera, and Zarqawi beheads this young man with his own knife, and then puts this image on the Internet. And this happens in early 2004 when, when opinion on the Iraq war is just starting to turn, and people starting to, to wonder whether this is a you know, a good thing for us to be involved in. And suddenly we contemplate this horrific image of a young American being slaughtered for no particular reason. But that becomes Darkali's calling card. It becomes the thing that sets him apart. He's much more vicious, and he's much more nimble in using modern, you know, Internet tools, using video, using, you know, World Wide Web, using broadband video to put this image out around the world. It becomes the model for what his organization does in the future, and it's exactly what we see ISIS doing all these years later. What was the reaction? Uh, you know, we know that here in the United States, as I said, uh, you know, civilization around the world was, was just horrified at this. But was, what was the reaction amongst those who decided, well, you know, here's a guy I want to follow? Yeah, it's hard for us to imagine that somebody would look at that and say, gee, I want to be part of that group. It's just it just. You know, who could commit an act like that? Who could get behind it? But the truth was that it made Zarqawi look very powerful and very daring in the eyes of these young jihadists, people who have a grudge against the United States, who believe the U.S. is responsible for stealing their oil or whatever their theories are, that America is this evil place. And for, for decades, they're, they're kind of being, being used to, to being subjugated, at least in their own worldview, by, by Western powers, by colonial powers. And here's this brash young terrorist who's willing to stand up to the Americans and really put it in their face. And so he becomes a hero, and he becomes somebody who's almost as well-known as bin Laden very quickly because he's not this old guy reading sermons you know, on, a, you know, on a podium. He's out there killing Americans with his own hands. He's dressed like a ninja. He's got sort of this black costume on and a long beard, and he's a man of daring. So he becomes the, the new jihadi hero and role model. You mentioned al-Qaeda and you mentioned uh, bin Laden. Uh, that's actually what uh, Zakari had aspired to before all this, is that uh, he had reached out to bin Laden and blew, bin Laden pretty much uh, blew him off up until this point, right? Exactly, because, you know, he did want to be part of al-Qaeda. And even back before 9-11, he tried to get involved with bin Laden. Bin Laden looked at this young Jordanian and decided that he was too crazy even for us. Here's somebody that is too radical, too hard-headed, too extreme in his views for al-Qaeda. So that tells you a lot about him. But this starts this, this rivalry, really, between Zarqawi's organization and core al-Qaeda. After a while, they develop a truce because they realize they can kind of use each other or benefit from, from, from having an alliance. But even now, uh, al-Qaeda looks at, at Zarqawi's followers, this, you know, ISIS today, as, as being too extreme by their standards. And it's this sort of the, the, the model of the more careful, more sort of strategic jihadist terrorism versus the new stuff we see in ISIS, which is much more in-your-face, much more brutal, much more uh, uh, careless about innocents being killed along the way, but just trying to shake things up and, and just cause a lot of fear and panic. At one point, al-Qaeda reached out to Zakwari and told him to tone it down because it was turning off other Muslims, correct? Yeah, exactly. This is 
kind of the core of the, the big fight between these two groups. That it's that some of the things that ISIS does are not just horrific to contemplate. Some of them are, are absolutely contrary to the teachings of, of the Quran, especially when you see ISIS do things like, uh, you know, killing innocent women and children, when you see them burning people alive, which is one of their favorite things to do. That's actually explicitly forbidden in the, in the Quran. And so al-Qaeda reaches out continuously and says, stop this stuff. You're making us look bad. This is not what we want to be. And Zerkawi just completely ignores them and does his own thing. And because he's this thug at heart, and because he's not even, you know, he's not very smart, he's not uh, a student of the Quran, he's barely literate, he can make up the rules as he wants to because he doesn't feel compelled to, to follow anybody's restrictions. Well, let's talk about uh, after uh, the Nick Berg uh, beheading. Uh, what were some of the other acts that uh, Zakari was in- involved with? He was very strategic in his use of violence, and this also makes him stand out a little bit. Even though he wasn't well-educated and he had no real military experience, he's somebody that figured out very quickly that you need to, to be dramatic, that you need to, to be really ambitious in your targeting. So he went after very quickly in Iraq all the people who could help us. He went after the U.N. Uh, mission there, the, the head of the U.N. delegation, killed the, the director of the U.N. in Iraq, went after the Red Cross, went after embassies, tried to drive away other sort of do-gooder groups who were trying to help the Iraqis. Anybody who could give the Americans sort of legitimacy in their occupation, he tried to drive away and was very successful at that. And in that enterprise, he had some very powerful allies, and they included some of the top uh, generals and military officers in Saddam Hussein's army and intelligence infrastructure. They became his, his helpers and enablers. And it was that combination of fanaticism, sort of religious criminal fanatics like Darqawi and these Iraqi professionals that became the core of the insurgency that, that nearly drove us out of Iraq by the middle of the 2000s. Just for background purposes, uh, as uh, Joby Work had mentioned, there was no connection between Saddam Hussein and Azaquari. But uh, after the U.S. coalition, after uh, the Iraqi army was disbanded, many of those people in the in the army uh, became terrorists after that. So there there was another decision along the way, uh, but. After the Berg execution, the U.N. attack, uh, Azaquari becomes a public enemy number one for the U.S. I mean, at one point, uh, there was a, a price on his head of $25 million. So the United States was on the, the, the outlook for this guy. In fact, even before the war started, they thought they could take the, the Army or the CIA thought they could take him out, but didn't because the war hadn't started. So when did it finally, I mean, over the years, and I know we're compressing all the horrors and all the crimes committed by Zaquari into just like a three-minute conversation, but finally in 2006, the United States was able to target him. Yeah, that it was, you're right, it was something that in the beginning, as you remember, sort of the, the rhetoric coming out of the administration at the time was that this resistance that the Americans are encountering are their dead-enders, they're sort of people who aren't very organized, it's sort of the last throes of a dying regime. But in fact, what was happening was a, a very sophisticated terrorist organization and insurgency was forming. And again, with these this very faithful decision of disbanding the army, sending all the Ba'athists home, anybody in Iraq who had a professional job had to be a member of the Ba'athist party, suddenly they didn't have jobs or pitches anymore. And so they become part of this, this terrorist network led by Zarqawi. And eventually they do uh, make mistakes, and the Americans put a lot of resources into trying to find them. It took more than two years after we really got going to get close to him because he kept slipping through our, our fingers. But in the end, we did find out where he was. We got an informant. We were able to uh, discover his, his safe house. And then in 2006, we dropped a couple of bombs on the house and killed him. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're speaking with Joby Warwick, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Black Flags, the Rise of ISIS. Uh, we were talking about uh, uh, Abu Masab al-Zaquari, and uh, he has been killed by the United States. So at that point, and at that time it was called uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, we're on the path, though, to uh, the forming of ISIS. So let's bring in another name, uh, Abu Amar al-Baghdadi. 
and I assume I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh, he kind of takes over the Zaquari uh, organization. And is it at that point, is it still uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq? So after Zarqawi dies, the, his followers, the ones that are left, decide to do a couple things. One is they decide that they need to make this more of a, an Iraqi organization. Zarqawi was a Jordanian, so he wasn't even a local. Uh, he had brought all these foreigners in to help run the organization and to be cannon fodder, to be suicide bombers. And so they decided to sort of put a little bit more Iraqi flavor and also more discipline to the organization. So they changed the name. It went from being al-Qaeda in Iraq to something called the Islamic State of Iraq. And that's a good chunk of what we know ISIS as now. And this new leader was brought on, this guy Baghdadi. A lot of us have heard his name. He's the one who, who kind of rose up through the ranks because he was actually a religious scholar. He had all these credentials that our colleague never had. And he was able to give sort of a religious veneer or, or, or stamp of approval to these horrific things that, that uh, the organization was doing. He uh, nearly lost uh, the campaign because he was, uh, by this time, this 2007, 2008, there was this thing called the Anbar Awakening. Uh, lots of Iraqis were joining the Americans in, in fighting the terrorists. Uh, we were getting very good intelligence on where their locations were, where their hideouts were, and we nearly had them defeated by the late 2000s. What happened? So uh, a couple of, you know, bits of history move in, in uh, this organization's favor. One was just as we were destroying them, uh, the Americans were beginning to withdraw. By 2010, we were leaving Iraq. We had an agreement with the Iraqi government that had been struck years earlier that we we're going to be out of the country by 2011. The debate still goes on on whether we should have stayed, should have kept more troops in the country instead of pulling out, but we did leave. And as soon as we left, the Iraqi government uh, took advantage of the opportunity to essentially settle scores. So you see this return of sectarian fighting between Sunnis and Shiites. And the Sunnis sort of are the minority in the country now. They used to run the country, now they're minorities. They begin looking around for allies, people who can help them out in fighting the Shiites. And a, an ally moves, you know, comes forward, and that's Darqawi's old organization, this, uh, this group now headed by... Baghdadi, who are promising to protect Sunnis and, and to protect their rights and to try to fight for a separate homeland for, for Sunni Iraqis. As you described it, Baghdadi had a much different background than Zakwari. And uh, as you said, he was, he was a, a religious scholar. As you say in the book, not someone you would picture as leading a terrorist organization. But he seemed to catch on fast then uh, as far as some of the acts of violence that were committed. Yes, he was absolutely committed to the model that Sarkali had set out in the beginning, and that's this use of, of extreme brutality, which works for them because it, it frightens everybody else. Nobody stands up against ISIS unless they've got an army behind them because ISIS is such a terrible organization. And also it, it sort of energizes the base for this group around the world, not just at home in Iraq, but others who want to be jihadists, who have the same zeal for jihad that uh, Baghdadi does. They see what uh, the kinds of acts that this group does, and then they flock to them. And, and he, again, has this combination of this religious radicalism and these Iraqi professionals. A lot of those old Saddam Hussein army guys are still very much part of the organization. They're running the military wing. They're doing the logistics. And so it's professionally run uh, on the inside, even though it's, it's, it's radical and extreme on the outside. Uh, I want to, and I'm, I know, again, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, uh, very few Americans, uh, regular Americans anyway, had heard much about ISIS. Then we moved to 2011. 2011, the war in Syria begins, and that's when ISIS really uh, gets its toehold. What happened in Syria that allowed ISIS to expand and become the group that we know today? Right. And as we were just discussing, this was an organization that was on its back heels. They were losing ground. They had lost a lot of their leaders. Uh, just probably a few hundred committed members of the organization left by 2010, let's say. But uh, two things were happening. One was the Americans are leaving, but the other important thing that began to happen around 2010, 2011 was the first flowering of this thing that we call Arab Spring. And Arab Spring turned out to be a disaster for most Arabs in most parts of the Middle East. And in 
particularly in Syria next door, it quickly turned into an all-out civil war, which was horrific for Syrians, but it was a great opportunity for, for Baghdadi and his followers, because here's a country that's falling apart, the, the sort of security infrastructure is unraveling, there's a security vacuum there in which bad guys can go and start their own organizations and raise money and, uh, and you know, obtain weapons, and this becomes you know, this rallying point for this dying organization. They get their second wind because of the Syrian conflict, move in there very aggressively, very quickly become the most powerful militant organization in Syria because, as we know, they're, they're experienced fighters, they're ruthless, and they begin attracting followers from around the world. So soon you have this phenomenon of literally tens of thousands of, of young men and some young women traveling to join this, this organization, which now calls itself the Islamic State, of Iraq and al-Sham, or some people say Syria, but it's a, a kind of a complicated term that means the Levant. But essentially, overnight, it goes from being this really sort of dead-end organization to the, the biggest and wealthiest terrorist group in the world. You mentioned wealthiest. One of the things that sets uh, uh, ISIS apart from other terrorist organizations, especially uh, al-Qaeda, is that ISIS actually was gaining territory. It, it wasn't just, uh, you know, hit and run, uh, hide in the mountains like uh, bin Laden. They were actually acquiring territory. At the same time, they were acquiring wealth very early on. That's one of the reasons we heard that ISIS was so difficult to defeat is because ISIS was well-financed. Exactly, because we'd never seen a model like this with a terrorist group. But there's some extent the Taliban had seized land and, and controlled Afghanistan, but here was an organization that decided that it could create a caliphate. It could sort of restore this ancient Islamic theocratic uh, government that existed in, in time past, and they wanted to try to do it in, in real time in, in Syria or in, in, East, in eastern Syria. And so they this is what they decided to do. They became very successful in seizing territory and holding on to it. And the more territory they got, the wealthier they got, particularly as they moved into Iraq and suddenly they have whole bank vaults, the little currency that falls to them. They have military bases stocked with U.S. equipment, including you know, armored vehicles, you know, you know, small arms, you know, RPGs, all kinds of stuff that, that uh, al-Qaeda's uh, you know, leaders would have just killed to have had. And here they have it all, and, 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 and with hundreds of millions of dollars spent on top of it. So where is the United States in its fight against ISIS today? Well, it's, it's kind of a, a mixed situation, as we see in the headlines every day. Right now, we're very close to, to being able to push uh, the Islamic State out of Iraq, which is a very important uh, milestone. Uh, the capital for the Islamic State in Iraq is the city called Mosul, and that's nearly liberated. There's only a few pockets of, of ISIS resistance left. We'll probably see that fall within a few days. So that's a very good news story. We're seeing ISIS under pressure in Syria as well. Their, their territorial holdings are shrinking. Raqqa is probably going to be assaulted by an array of Kurdish and, um, and Arab troops in the next few weeks. But the, the bad news part of it is that uh, this is an organization that's metastasized. So they're not just in, the, in Iraq and Syria anymore, but they've got little cells and provinces uh, spread across the Middle East, uh, followers in Europe who are willing to, to do their bidding, even if they're not specifically instructed to, to, to kill or carry out acts of terrorism, they'll, they'll do it anyway. So it's, it's a worldwide organization in a way that I think people didn't anticipate even two, three years ago. Last year, during the presidential campaign, uh, Donald Trump uh, came out famously and blamed Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton for uh, forming ISIS, and I, I can't remember the exact language, uh, but from writing your, your book and looking back at the history, not looking to point fingers at anyone, but decisions made by the Bush administration and by the Obama administration with pulling out of, of Iraq seems to have contributed to uh, the proliferation of ISIS. And again, not looking to cast blame, but some of those decisions did lead to that. Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, crazy things are said on the campaign trail all the time, and, and we know that. That's just that's sort of the nature of American politics. But it's it's quite a uh, not just an overstatement, but but it's wrong to say that uh, that uh, Obama and, and Hillary Clinton, I think President Trump said, were responsible for the formation of ISIS. We, as we can see, just looking at the timeline of this organization and how it began, the original sin really was 
was it was a decade earlier the the, uh, the invasion of Iraq sort of started this this uh, avalanche and you can also argue that uh, that there were failures on uh, President Obama's watch too in the sense that we didn't uh, act more aggressively to stop uh, Syria from becoming a you know a, a terrorist safe haven that would have been a, a very controversial and difficult thing to get involved in as Americans and people can debate forever whether we should have done more. Uh, there's a whole other argument about whether we should have stayed in Iraq and would that have stopped um, ISIS from taking over parts of Western Iraq. We'll, we'll never know that for sure, but uh, historians will, will will find fault on all sides. I think in this argument, but the, the reality is we're stuck now with a situation that it's you know not just consequences for people in the Middle East, but for really across the West and even the United States. It would almost seem to be very, very difficult, a, a, a huge challenge, while the civil war in Syria continues. Exactly. The, the most dangerous thing is is the security vacuum, when there's a, a part of the world where there's no rule of law, where there's no uh, government agency that's responsible, and, and very bad things can happen. That's what led to the rise of al-Qaeda back in the 80s. That's what led to the rebirth of ISIS in the last decade. And so job one has to be eliminating the caliphate, and there's there's no way to negotiate with these people. They don't want to compromise. It's it's an all-out war, and they're, they're, they do have to be destroyed in this organization. But that's only the first part of the task, because the, the bigger task and the more difficult task is dealing with this radicalization that occurs throughout the world, and it happens in our country. We see the the, the terrorist attacks that have happened here have almost entirely been not by foreigners coming here to carry out acts of terrorism, not by refugees or immigrants, but by American citizens, people who were born in this country and become radicalized by seeing these terrible messages online. That's the problem we have to deal with, and that's a law enforcement problem, but it's also a much bigger problem for society to wrestle with. And We need lots of allies, including the entire Muslim community, to be with us in this fight and trying to stop radicalization when it occurs. Jill B. Warwick, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS. Thank you very much for being with us today. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. And there is breaking news today. It's being reported. The Russians say that uh, they have killed, they have attacked uh, the, the headquarters and killed Baghdadi, the head of ISIS. So we'll continue to follow that on NPR throughout the day. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org slash quality.